0: Hello and welcome to Togetherness Reviewed, a podcast by nerdfighters for nerdfighters, where each week different members of the community come together to discuss different facets of the human-centered life. This podcast was inspired by John Green's The Anthropocene Reviewed, and today's episode we will be discussing cemeteries and trust. Walking
1: through a cemetery in rural Kansas, I looked down and saw a fuzzy, yellow inchworm. Pale, captivating yellow. I had never seen anything like it. It moved startlingly fast, climbing up and down the blades of grass to some unknown destination. When I looked closer, I noticed it wasn't just yellow, but also green and black and white. Crouching down in the grass, I absorbed its vitality and strangeness. It didn't mind me watching, just kept wiggling and racing its way across the vast and daunting lawn. I felt my breath catch and my chest fill up with awe. I didn't want to watch it too closely and seem like a child, but I was much more interested in this miraculous, tiny living thing than the endless grey tombstones and bones beneath our feet. We had been driving across the Midwest for days, educating me on all the family history I missed in our home on the coast. I knew I should be interested in my history and my relatives, but I was honestly so tired of looking at tombstones and finding names none of us knew just to cross them off some mental list. I liked the cemeteries, especially the old ones, with their bumpy ground and big shady trees and old stones with writing almost too worn to decipher. But I liked them for their life, and the feeling of standing somewhere so full of memory not because some distant relative of mine was decomposing there. As he talked and talked and talked with my relatives, my dad walked dangerously close to the small wonder in the grass. I didn't say anything. I thought, I'll wait. If he steps closer, then I'll say something. It seems silly to interrupt his contemplation of long-dead loved ones to interject for this insignificant worm. He stepped to the right. I started, wait. But by the time he heard me, the inchworm had disappeared beneath his large, black boot. A panic rose in my throat. What? He asked. Stumbling over my words, I explained that it was just a caterpillar. He lifted his foot, and my mom said, look, there it is, it's fine. She turned away, satisfied. I knew better. Maybe she did, too. The pale fuzz didn't move. Its body was deflated. Its tiny legs, moving with such purpose a few minutes before, were still. A needless death, taken without malice or care. The collateral. In her book, Braiding grass. Robin Wall Kimmerer describes how the words collateral damage, quote, ask us to turn our faces away as if man-made destruction were an inescapable fact of nature, unquote. The words collateral damage ask us to agree that our human race is marching forward and that the loss of lives along the way is a sad but necessary side effect. But Kimmerer doesn't accept this avoidance of the pain that we cause. She describes a summer night when she and her daughters drove out to the road by Labrador Pond, a seasonal mating ground for salamanders. The slow, soft salamanders had to crawl across the road to reach their destination, but many weren't fast enough to avoid the speeding cars. Kimmerer and her daughters spent the night searching for salamanders on the pavement and ferrying them across the road. She writes, Tonight the salamanders' biggest threat is the cars that go speeding by, their occupants unaware of the spectacle that is taking place beneath their tires. From inside the car, listening to late-night radio, you just don't know. But standing on the roadside, you can hear the pop of the body, hear the moment when a glistening being following magnetic trails toward love is reduced to red pulp on the pavement. We try to work faster, but there are so many, and we are so few. Maybe it is easier to stay inside our cars. Maybe it would have been easier if I never crouched down in the grass, if I stayed standing and staring at the tombstones. But I would rather notice, stand by the roadside, and bear witness to the suffering, than remain comfortably oblivious. Before we go on, I should probably tell you that I may not be qualified to write this review. I haven't spent much time in cemeteries beyond this one road trip, which, admittedly, did contain a lot of cemetery visits, and I've never lost anyone truly close to me. Other than the death of my grandparents when I was too young to really remember, grief has been something I watch others go through and wonder how to help with from a distance. I haven't visited the gravestone of someone I deeply miss. But I did mourn the loss of that small caterpillar. I grieved as we drove away, holding the tightness in my chest to keep it from leaking out. I was supposed to care about my dead family, not a dead worm. It would seem so silly, childish. I must have killed so many worms of my own, walking carelessly across the ground with my big feet. This anecdote is so metaphorically resonant, it's almost comical. I promise I didn't make it up. Ironically, by contemplating death, we caused more of it. Humanity crushes so much beneath its feet, never noticing or choosing not to. Like me, those of us who notice often wait too long to speak up. Instead of wondering at the life all around us, we move on to the more important business of human corpses long gone. We are all responsible. Wonder and curiosity and awe seem like weaknesses to hide when in fact they are the only way forward. Feeling and noticing and falling into wonder and being hit with the ache of sudden loss has to be better than never seeing the life at all. But as all metaphors do, this one fails at a point. Humanity does cause much death without knowing, but much of it is purposeful, as we would squash an ant. As my dad's elderly cousin showed us his farm, we came across a strip of land by the river. This was Indian land, he said. He explained that it was never homesteaded, until the government lied again and pushed its native keepers further west. A white man gobbled it up, and now my family owns it. As if you could truly own the universe contained inside that land, the millions of lives sustained by that soil. I was raised on thievery and lies. This land is part of my family's identity, home to stories of settlers and wagons and heroic homesteaders. And our bones rest on stolen land. Reading back through this story makes my throat choke up. Sometimes it feels like I'm swimming in a world of unfathomable loss, reported daily in death tolls and painfully blunt headlines. The dark water looms, the loss of the small life and the injustices of the past still bleeding into the present, only a small segment of the vast sea. But there is no way forward if I remain only in the darkness of the past. When speaking of the salamanders, Kemmerer writes, If grief can be a doorway to love, then let us all weep for the world we are breaking apart so we can love it back to wholeness again. Cemeteries, as places of remembrance and love and grief, have a crucial significance. But we, the living, go to them for a visit, not to stay the night. Along with buried bones, our earth contains a miraculous, teeming mess of life, of which humanity is just one part. For every caterpillar we squash with our big boots, the caterpillar and the we, representing many things, of course. There are thousands more going along their merry way, clambering up and down the blades of grass nearby. The next time I see a caterpillar in the grass, I want to speak up. I don't want to just watch the salamanders crawl across the road. I want to pick them up, one by one. There is so much life left in this crumbling world. I give cemeteries. 3.5 3.5 stars.
2: In my early high school years, I'd go to my best friend's house every Friday after school. Occasionally, my mom would drive me there. But usually, I'll just go to the bus stop at 3:10, wait for the bus for about 10 minutes, and in less than 30 minutes, I'll be having fun playing video games and chatting. But one day, as I was getting ready to leave my house, a question popped up in my head. So I went and asked my mother, Mom, how do you know that after I leave the door, I'm actually going to his house and I'm not going somewhere else smoking or drinking? You never check with his mom, you just ask me where I'm going and that's it. To which she replied, Well, yes, because I trust you. To which I replied, But why? And to this day, I sustain that question. Why do people trust each other? What even are the standards of trust? Why do you trust me with a task, and then, if I don't deliver, you will not necessarily stop trusting me at once, but if I keep failing, you probably will stop trusting me? This means that trust, at least in the human society, is not binary. And it functions in a spectrum for both the level of trust i have in you and the kinds of trust i have with you say you're an architect and your boss assigns a project of a fancy new building he's trusting you with the design and with it the lives of many people which is a huge deal but he's not likely to go and talk to you about his life issues unless you're actually friends which would unlock a different kind of trust and if you stop to think about it for a second Trust is really everywhere. You trust the food companies enough to buy their products. You also trust the people who made the device you're listening to my voice in. And this trust, this special bond with a brand is exactly the key feature that makes you pick up a two and a half dollar over a one and a half dollar milk carton. And you trust your boss will pay you by the end of the month, and so you keep showing up to work every day. We don't usually fathom how much our society functions based solely on trust. A nice example about this can be found in Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Harari, where he wrote, Why are you willing to flip hamburgers, sell health insurance, or babysit three obnoxious brats when all you get for your exertions is a few pieces of colored paper? People are willing to do such things when they trust the figments of their collective imagination. But still, the Anthropocene isn't the only society to be fueled primarily by trust. A lot of animals such as meerkats rely on a few lookouts for when the rest of the pack is eating. The black spider monkeys hunt in pairs for the same reason. While one of the primates eats in the floor of the jungle, the other one remains highly aware of any possible predators that could catch them. The wolf cups won't play with a cup if he plays too rough or against their basic rules. In other words, if a cop betrays his equals, they'll socially isolate him. One of the explanations evolutionary biologists have offered about why we trust each other is that it was advantageous for a species to work together, for it made them stronger as a group by exploiting everyone's ability while supporting each other's weaknesses. And how did nature make sure we would follow that guideline? Simple by making a species highly dependent upon each other and increase the benefits of cooperating versus non-cooperating animals. As Lucy Conkling explained in an article by The Scientist, for cooperation between species to withstand the inherently selfish nature of evolution, individuals that fail to cooperate must have fewer descendants than cooperators on average. Philosophy has given a lot of thought to this as well trying to explain the nature of trust, the value of it, when should we trust, and might even explain that we only trust each other when the circumstances demand it. It takes into account the vulnerability element of this act and how according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, what we risk while trusting is the loss of the things that we entrust to others, including our self-respect, perhaps, which can be shattered by the betrayal of our trust. This trust network is quite fragile, and it is actually a marvelous wonder of the world. Even though biologists say the interdependence created by evolution supports trust, it still implies a huge risk. Just as the philosophers state, trust means opening up and exposing ourselves to a complete stranger. Entrusting him with a true self, your greatest fears, and your worst version can lead to a massive realm of darkness. Whenever you trust somebody, you're in danger of being disappointed, which, if you've ever been in this situation, you know it can be devastating. But it can also lead to a healthy, beautiful relationship. It can come as a friend, as a lover, or even as a pet, it's almost a leap of faith. But when you talk about trust in terms of faith, the term believe and the act of believing come into play. According to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, trust is defined as an assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. Meanwhile, the term belief is defined as something that is considered to be true or honest, or as the firm or wholehearted religious conviction and the act of regarding the existence of God as a fact. Of course, if you take the last definition, it fits perfectly. It even has the name of God in it, but if you ask me, humans' relation with God seems more like trust than belief. Why? Believing is a one way action. We believe and nothing really happens, but trusting? It seems more dynamic. I talk to God, he replies. He sees us struggling, he tries to help. And to me, that's really what happens. But it's up to you, really. Do you believe to trust, or do you trust to believe? However, you could also not believe and not trust. It's marvelous. To me, that's the beauty of it. The fact that we can choose not to trust, but we choose to do it anyway. Back in AD 28, the apostles chose to believe in God through Jesus. How did he gain that trust? That's a topic for another episode. But for today, I give trust five stars.
0: If you would like more Togetherness Reviewed, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Together Reviewed to send us an email at togethernessreviewed at gmail.com or reach out to us in the Discord, which will be linked in the description of this episode. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported us thus far, from writing essays to editing essays, making music, or just being here in general. This podcast was inspired by John Green's The Anthropocene Reviewed episodes come out every other sunday and we are so thankful for everyone who has been here as they say in my hometown don't forget to be awesome